as leaders, we've got to foster a culture of learning. We've got to promote a culture of entrepreneurship. And I think we've got to encourage that culture of experimentation and innovation. And we've got to lead our teams with compassion. Mm -hmm. And I think this will really ensure the long-term success as we evolve into this new world of AI. Welcome to the Search and Succeed podcast. I'm Rob Glass, Managing Partner of Hunston Partners. We are so fortunate to share many journeys with some exceptional people throughout their careers, people whom are thriving in their area of expertise. And on this podcast, we'll be chatting with them about how they perceive and strive for success within their industry and their life. I hope you enjoy Today, we're delighted to have Salima Rice on the podcast. Salima is a highly sought after and well respected individual, not only within the world of data and AI, but also within industry itself. This data diva and senior executive has over 25 years of experience mentoring, evangelizing, and directing data management strategies. AI transformation, digital innovation, and advising large, complex Fortune 500 companies. Salima is recognized as one of the top 30 most inspiring women in AI, one of the top 200 business and technology innovators in the world, and one of the 100 most influential leaders in data. Salima is also a board member, an advisor, and currently CEO of CDO Today, and also spokesperson on CNBC for artificial intelligence. I think it's fair to say Salima is fairly qualified. We're very excited she's joining us on the pod today, and we can't wait to hear her versions of success. Fantastic to be here with you, Salima. How are you today? I'm great, Rob. How are you? Yeah, we're really good. Thanks. I know that we've been looking forward to this podcast with you for ages, and for anyone listening, Salima is these days just so super busy. We've pushed this back a few times to make sure that she gets the time to, to spend here with us, which we're, we're so appreciative of. The first time that we spoke, Salima, you were at, you were at your previous company at Accenture. And time has moved on since then. And you know anyone that looks at your LinkedIn profile will see that you are an advisory board member at multiple organizations and also part of CDO Today, as well as other platforms and companies. Can you just tell us a little bit about what you're doing today? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. And I am excited to be here. Um, Well, CDO Today is an organization that I founded um, because, you know, so many chief data officers, you know, the um, really learning from the ones from the past and helping the ones today and then preparing the ones for tomorrow, a lot of that comes from um, experienced chief data officers like myself. So I'd been a chief data officer for over 20 years. Um, then I was the head of applied intelligence for um, for Accenture for several years uh, where I led um 
the CDO program for um, Accenture. And so uh, today I get the amazing opportunity to work with about 75 uh, Fortune 500 chief data officers. And um, we just have a think tank. We do mentoring, we do exchanging of, you know, of goals, exchanging of challenges, and, um, and really just being there for each other. You know, when I first started out, we, we didn't have a we didn't have books to read. We didn't have podcasts to listen to. We we just had each other, and so um, so I get to do that. In addition, um, we serve CDO today services a lot of the private equity and investment management firms with advisory services, and um, and then I do uh, speaking engagements and panels and and bring along other CDOs. So um, I'm excited to you know, see where we go with it and and just um, have fun right now. Um, we'll come on later to talking about uh, CDOs and the journey that CDOs have been on and are on today. But as I said, you know, looking at your profile, the, the amount of different companies that you work with, do you find it easy to multitask? Do you find it easy to wear lots of different hats, but also... <laughs> uh, I know that you love working with like-minded people as you do so, but how was the multitasking element? I love it. I, I love being able to, you know, I love being able to work across multiple industries. So it's one of the things that's it's kind of actually, you know, hurt me in, in working with other ones of the big fours, right? Because I think everybody's very siloed into very industry-based leaders, but what's happening is that and has happened for about 10 or 15 years is that, you know, industries need to learn from each other. Right. So if you think about financial services, for example, you know, we laid the groundwork for financial services a long time ago. Right. And to, between 2006 and 2010, you know, they learned how to ensure that they had an incredibly strong foundation that, you know, they weren't going to build the house on sand. Regulatory gavelins were there to make sure that, you know, they did the found the one thing they were going to get right was the foundation, right? Where mm -hmm. a lot of other industries sort of like come out the gate with, um, I want to do all these buzz, buzz things, right? I want to do AI. I want to do um, machine learning. And they want to build these amazing products, but they don't have the foundation. So they look at foundation as almost like a form of technical debt. And so being able to take knowledge from one industry and share it with another, because a lot of times you have people, especially um, C-level executives, feel like there's nobody in my industry who's doing it better than us. So mm -hmm. we want to learn from other industries. And so being able to bring a perspective um, to every situation about here's what we're seeing in media and here's what we're seeing in technology and here's what we're seeing in health and life sciences and financial services and retail. Like we, um, I think that for me personally, it's something that, you know, I've been very diverse in my own background, right? I mean, came up through marketing analytics and um, business process management, asset management, you know, long before I got into financial services. And so, you know, of the 75 to 100 uh, C-level executives that I work with, it's a good split. It's, you know, a dozen in financial services, a dozen in life sciences, um, and it's really and a dozen in retail. And I love that I'm able to do that. And, you know, it definitely um, 
it keeps me, you know, it keeps me on my toes and keeps me learning. And I, yeah. and I think that, and I think as chief data officers, it's really interesting if you start looking at organizational setup, right? So if you think about in financial services, chief data officers typically will work for the chief risk officer, or sometimes mm -hmm. they might work for the chief information officer, both of which can be incredibly challenging, right? Because in one sense, the business owns the data. In another sense, IT owns the data, which is a whole other topic. But then if you look at like in retail, the chief data analytics officer, a lot of times reports to the chief marketing officer, you know, because that's where the focus is. Or in life sciences, some of the life science uh, chief data officers uh, report to the chief financial officer. Um, yeah. And now we have some that are like myself who report directly to the CEO or the president. And I think that um, with each hierarchy, with each person that you report to, there are unique challenges in how to show value to the board, right? How do I, reporting to this person or this C-level executive, how does that compare? What are, th what are ways that I can, you know, be aligned more strategically to the company's goals and objectives? How do I align to the CEO's goals and objectives and make sure that, you know, everything that we do in the data and AI space is either helping us grow, you know, both financially as, as well as reputation, or it's, um, or it's helping us save money, right? So yeah. I think, you know, realistically, that's where a lot of the world is today. I think that's interesting, that cross-sector element. I think if you're someone that sells a certain, let's say, data and analytics, but into a certain sector, I think that, that a, a company would be interested in hiring you into a same vertical because you understand how to sell into that sector. But I think there's a lot to be said about if you work in one sector, actually bringing freshness to another sector with the understanding of the previous one, i.e. there's, there's things to be learned, as you said there, from the way one sector, one industry does something and another one does as well. And we see that in different ways with organizations when they're looking to hire people? Do they have the vision, if you like, when they're hiring someone that they can look outside of their space in order to bring new ideas into their space? Or do they just go with what they feel is safe by hiring someone who is specifically from that sector and has been there and done it? Which is all really interesting. And, and we're moving into different realms here. And I can see, I know how passionate you are when it comes to data and AI and the chief data officer. And as I say, we'll come on to that, Salima, for sure. But one thing that I, I always love to ask on the podcast is your perception, your thoughts on the phrase search and succeed. When you hear it, what are your thoughts? What does it mean to you? Well, I, I, first of all, I love the phrase and it's part of the reason that I, you know, wanted to, uh, to work with you. I think that, you know, for me, it really reflects kind of like the right skills, finding the right skills at the right time for exactly what I need in order to be successful, right? And so um, there is a term that I used to use when um, I was with my clients around finding purple squirrels, right? And when they're searching for, uh, for talent based on job titles and not based on what skills they really need to be successful to do that job. So when you change the requirements and you use data and AI 
and, and leverage them, you can increase your chances of success by as much as 40%. So, you know, I, yeah. I love that, that terminology. Really yeah, that's great. Thank you. And I love the way you think about that. And as we say, yeah, everyone is looking for their own version of their success, right? We were chatting to someone the other day who articulated it that their success ultimately is how satisfied they are. So they search for satisfaction. And the two things, I suppose, go hand in hand in many respects, because success is so often affiliated with careers, but isn't necessarily what one person's success is, if that makes sense. And so when it comes to to you, Salima, and what drives and motivates you to your success as a whole, what drives and motivates you? Well, I guess first and foremost, I have this strange desire to be needed. Like I am actually motivated by others' success because, you know, I, I've been very fortunate to have worked with some great leaders in the past, um, having the opportunity to report directly to the CEO or the president within the organization. So I like to think that a large majority um you know, of my goals are around, like I said, you know, really being able to help the company grow or helping them to be able to save um, money for the organization and be more efficient. So, you know, it motivates me when I can align my goals and objectives to um, to somebody else's goals and objectives. Um, for a long time, um, I used to keep uh, John Maxwell's The 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership on my desk. Like I just kept it there forever because, you know, to me, like um, my success is really in the law of legacy. Um, When you leave an organization or, you know, even when you leave earth, right? I mean, um, how are you going to be remembered? Uh, So, you know, I'm very passionate about leading my teams with compassion. and I always have been, even when, uh, even when it wasn't popular, especially for women. Um, some people would actually see that in me as a sign of weakness. But um, my teams always knew it was a big part of my strength. Um, and my team um, has always been, you know, my work family. So, you know, how am I? How do I want to treat my family? Right? How? Um, it's you know. I think one of the things that I'm um, most proud of in my entire career is that for about 10, about a 10 year window, I had, um, and this is recently, I had uh, less than 1% attrition in my organization. And that to wow. me is, um, is something I'm just, you know, I, I think that as a leader, you know, we win together and we lose together or, you know, we fail fast together. Right. But um, it's it was always very important for me to create a culture of innovation and a culture of experimentation um, in my organization. And, you know, um, I think that, you know, family is a word that is uh, is really close to me. Um, you know, and I say God, family work in that order. I, I mean it. And, you know, and you know, family comes first. So, you know, when I'm at work, you know, I take care of, I take care of mine. Is that the same outside of work then as well, Salima? Do you apply the same logic and thinking away from work in order to find your success generally as a whole in life? 
Yeah, it's, it's funny you ask that. I mean, you know, I joke with people and say, you know, data is how I make a living, but compassion's way is how I make a life. Because, you know, and I'm not working a lot of times, my husband and I are, are, you know, we either travel with our kids when we can, because we like to make memories. Um, and um, they like to just be out and do things and go places. And, um and then the other way is by serving, you know, and by serving the homeless and serving people that are less fortunate. And, and I think that, you know, as humans, you know, it's, it's kind of like our legacy to serve others and, and, you know, be kind to others, be a society that helps others. And at least that's yeah. how I like to, you know, I always say, you know, I'm, I'm using AI to help make the world a better place. But I think that I try to do that in all aspects of my life. Do you find that you juggle all the things that are important to you, your career, your team at work, your family at home, the work that you do with the homeless and all the other things that you're interested in? Do you find that it's easy to juggle that in order to find your version of that success? It wasn't always, but um, it became, you know, at a point in my life, I realized what order I wanted it to be and that I wanted, you know, God, family, work. Um and, you know, I'm a bit of a overachiever <laughs> anyhow. So I think that, you know, I, I try to give a hundred percent to everything. Um, and so, you know, early in my career, especially as a woman coming up in a, in a, at a time when it was, you know, I think in one uh, at one organization, I was probably one of, you know, 200, um, or three of 200, I guess, uh, of in an IT organization. And so, you know, I think that there were times when, you know, I probably worked more than I should have, or, you know, gave more to work because I was, um, I was just trying to compete in a world where I thought that I had to be better and smarter and faster than everybody else in order to succeed. Um, but what I found was that um, what it really came down to, Rob, was relationships. Um, one time I was uh, I was working with a, a large organization and the CIO said to me, you know, um, they follow you. And I didn't really know. And I said, well, how do I know I'm leading them, you know, to the right place? Like, you know, because like there's a lot of people following you and they they want to follow you. It comes naturally. And um, and he's actually the one who gave me that book. And um, and, you know, they would oftentimes refer to me as their consiglior. Right. And um, and didn't. Uh, and and I think that for me. It, it made me realize that my relationships weren't with companies. My relationships were with people. Yeah. And that as people, um, as, as humans, I think it's natural for us to just want to help each other, not tell each other what we want to hear and know for certain. Like my, um, my colleagues know for certain and customers, internal or external, they know for certain that I have their best interests at heart and that um, I would never tell somebody what they want to hear. Um, when I worked with uh, Bain, <clears throat> the CEO who hired me in um, told me, you know, you are the CEO of the data team. 
like I may be the the CEO of the, the president of the company, but you are the CEO of that organization. And, you know, it really puts a different perspective on you when you build relationships um, based on, you know, feeling and not just, you know, um, I don't know, so many times I think organizations go after, you know, the big buck, right? And I think that there's nothing wrong with going after those, but I think building relationships along the way, and it's kind of like stopping to smell the roses, like Mm -hmm. that's really where for me personally, that um, has been my the, the biggest part of my success. Um, a gentleman, I don't know if you know, by the name of um, Thornton May. I met Thornton in, um, I want to say it was, uh, um, well, it was 19 years. It was a little over 19 years ago. And right. we I just recently did an event with him at the Ohio State University. And, and that's when it dawned on me how many years. But you know, 19 years ago, he used to do a roundtable with just CIOs, very, very private. And he met me and, um, you know, because of our relationship, he invited me to have a seat at that table. And I think that it um, it made such a huge difference in my life that, you know, he saw something in me not because of, you know, how much I knew about data warehousing or how much I knew about, you know, star schemas or analytics, but he saw something in me that was a problem solver. And, and he realized that I was in an organization where, you know, I was sort of trapped and needed to be able to kind of um, share and I needed to be able to help others. And so he brought me along on this journey for the last 19 years to be able to help solve problems for people kind of outside of my day-to-day job. And um, it's been, that honestly has been one of the best professional things that I've ever done is to just take a couple of days off once or twice a year and, you know, go do these events that have nothing to do with my day job, but yet it really, um, it gave me a whole different perspective, a whole different group of people. It helps us to be able to build relationships with people that we may not typically build relationships with. Um, even within when I would get back within my own organization, I would have everybody on my team do active listening. I make everybody go do community service. I think that it's really important that we, you know, learn about each other, both inside of our, you know, work walls and outside. Yeah. And and that that nature, that mindset of being a problem solver, is that is that maybe what sort of got you into the data and analytics and AI space in the first place, do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, early in my career, I was um I was actually trained as a big five consultant mm-hmm. um in the areas of uh client services and project management and um business process management. And um, but it was really about problem solving, you know, and I went uh I I went on to do various types of analytical roles, um, a lot in marketing and CRM and HR analytics because mm-hmm. there were problems, right? Like how can we use data? to solve these problems. And, and, you know, I'm, um, I'm not young anymore. So when the first databases came about, I don't even, 
I mean, I think there was like DBase 3 Plus and Microsoft Access. You know, I would actually go and read the manuals. People would be like, oh my gosh, she's so smart. I'm like, listen, there's a book. Like, you know, um, it teaches you all these different things that this application can do. Um, And so I would use... Uh, I would use these tools as they were coming out as a way um, to help people uh, solve problems using data. How can data help us be more successful? Um, In my first leadership role, I think like where I had a a pretty large team, um, it was around building out an enterprise data warehouse. So, you know, I looked for people like, you know, Bill Inman and Ralph Kimball to help uh, to help me um, learn kind of that data ingestion, aggregation methodologies. Um, I looked to people like um, Stephen Few and Ed Tufty and and even Tom Davenport, who's um, competing in analytics, opened up a whole new world for me with the work that he did at uh, MGM. But I think, you know, more importantly, the, the business started looking for opportunities um, to create um, a a way to solve problems without just being sort of siloed, right? I mean, um, boards and maybe like the the mid two thousands were saying, you know, we want a single version of the truth was the big buzzword, right? And you know, how do I eliminate my um, my silos and and so what I would see was that the evolution more of reporting that was coming out, kind of moving from away from the rear view mirror and that descriptive to a more storytelling approach. Like, you know, how can I help you? Like I could sell easily like myself because I would say, why do you want to know what happened? Don't you want to know why it happened and what should happen next? And yeah. so, um, you know, I think that right now, you know, we're at a place where um, in just the last six months, right? I mean, like we are truly witnessing AI's inflection point into the world of AI. I mean, what OpenAI and ChatGTB is doing, like um, it's, you know, the, the kind of ask me anything or, um, but um, it at the end of the day, it's being able to problem solve and decision and be able to make quality fact-based decisions with data that really differentiates um, both the leader and the organization that they're working for, in my opinion. Have you felt that the, because you talk about the last six months and how much acceleration we've had in the advancement of AI, not just from a business perspective, but the, the general person sitting on in their living room at home is able to access these things. Do you see the the acceleration that's happened over the past 20 years over the past 10 years over the past five now the last six months do you see that is going to continue what impact do you think that acceleration is going to have yeah i I definitely think it's going to uh i think it's going to continue and i think that um i think that you know because so many organizations right now are you know wanting to do more, right? They want to do more to to get a competitive advantage, mostly to get a competitive advantage. But you know, for me personally, you know, the kind of the evolution of the the, the in my role as a chief data officer has changed so much just in the last you know 
just in the last few years, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, for me personally, I was what they refer to as like a fifth generation CDO. Um, I started my career as the bailiff, then I became the lawmaker, then the builder, then the value driver, then the strategic driver. And I guess now I'm kind of a strategic advisor. But, you know, it's really, I data and AI has gone from an IT led to, you know, being business led to kind of like, you know, for me and for many CDOs, it's to having it all, right? I mean, um, I owned the, from the ingestion process, the integration, the mastering, the quality, the governance, the analytics, the AI, truly end to end. And now I think that, you know, we're seeing um, more organizations recognize that data is what drives digital transformation. Like mm-hmm. data is really sexy now, right? Like, you know, <laughs> data doesn't live in the in the basement anymore without a window office. Um, the CDO, I think, too, is like no longer a cost center, right? But now they have the ability um especially today, I mean, to really drive both top and bottom line growth within an organization. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that we're seeing more chief data officers have, you know, a seat at the table. I mean, and and the table meaning the boardroom. I mean, Mm -hmm. I think that that's an evolution. I see a lot of CEO CDOs that are becoming CEOs. And I think that we're going to continue to see more of that as we see this trajectory of analytics becoming kind of the norm within every organization. That's the poster, isn't it? Data is becoming more sexy. I think that needs to go on billboards all yeah. over <laughs> London and New York. You know, it's, it's, it's so interesting you say about the CDO becoming the CEO. This is something we've been talking about for a little bit of time now. And fundamentally, the, the data and the digital side is so important and so crucial to the top and bottom line of organizations, hence why it could be the CEO. Do you think that someone who goes into a CDO role and has that skill set and personality Do you think that's aligned to being a CEO of an organization? I think it depends on the organization. I think that, you know, organizations, so there's this, you know, you guys probably know Randy Bean. He writes a lot for um, Harvard Business Review with Tom Davenport. And, you know, he's always talking about chief data officers and their um, lifeline of some crazy 2.4 years, which, you know, I don't agree with, but um, love him. But um, I think that um, I think that organizations that position the chief data and analytics officer as the company's change agent have a whole different level of success as ones that kind of, you know, create the role, but don't give them the ability to make any changes within the Mm -hmm. organization. And I think that, you know, there, there is definitely, I mean, we see it a lot of times we see um, the, the CDO of large commercial companies, you know, becoming the CEO of, uh, of companies that are going to be there to support them, to help them, whether it's, you know, a supplier, a vendor, you know, data, AI, analytics, some, some sort. But I think that, um, there's absolutely could be more within an organization as data and AI become kind of the lifeline for organization. I mean, you know, when we talk about what's hot, I mean, you know, what are CDOs 
talking about or what are they worried about? I mean, data monetization is definitely in the top five. (laughs) So, um, you know, how can we, you know, do more with what we have? How can we, you know, Mm. support internal, external? Mm. Um, I think that the, this today's CEO um, needs to be either highly trained in data. I think Mm -hmm. within organizations that, um, within organizations where CDOs will become CEOs, they have, will have a very robust data literacy program. I think that they'll also, um, I think that, you know, I mentioned them being the change agent, but I think just in general, they will be an organization that truly uses data as an asset that, you know, that the the term um, data-driven company will be a reality for them, that they're, you know, you can look at us. There's no, there's no veil. There's no curtain. There's no black box. You know, we use data to differentiate ourselves and, you know, there's things coming with regulatory and responsible AI that, you know, they're going to have to companies that are going to succeed are also going to have to be companies that we trust as CDOs can position themselves as the change agents, they'll have more opportunities to be elevated by the board as the actual change agent within the whole organization. It seems to me that the CEO should, in the same way that they have their CFO at their right hand every minute of every day, that finance and business is so much closer together for obvious reasons, but that the CDO should be right there as well, right? Um, Absolutely. As as important, as critical, if not more so in many respects. Mm -hmm. In two of my roles as a a chief data officer, I reported directly to the president and CEO and had, um, you know, and was brought to the board, you know, many of times, even though I wasn't officially on their boards, I, you know, was invited to speak to the board on many occasions. Um, Just recently had an opportunity for a company I used to go back, I used to work with to go back and speak to their board. So, um, so I guess it comes around eventually but i do think that you know boards in general you know as i've been you know invited to join several boards of both companies and both the ai and talent space as well as data um that i sit on it's a it's a game changer right i think that diversity of thought and um diversity of uh you know the way that things were done in the past, you know, when we think about if you continue to do things the way you've always done them, you know, um, you know, how much results are you really going to get? So and critical objectivity around the actual facts of what's going on and how to realize it and then how to forecast what's going to happen moving forwards. You know, it's just, it's so important. Just a quick pause to the podcast to share with you a charity very close to our hearts, Prevent Breast Cancer, who are just incredibly passionate about stopping the disease before it starts. Prevent Breast Cancer promote healthier lifestyles, screening and early diagnosis. They make sure 100% of their research funding is focused on preventing breast cancer for future generations. They're the only UK charity entirely dedicated to the prediction and prevention of breast cancer. They're right at the front line in the fight against the disease. And we are right behind them. But you talked before about uh, the CDOs and the the vendors that they work with and the support functions or support companies that they have in and around them. 
you moved from being an internal CDO into the world of into the professional services space. Mm-hmm. So two things: how does it differ being internally as a CDO to being within you know, a company like Accenture? And what are the the challenges for consultancies and for large or even small SIs that that are working with companies in industry? Well, I think it differs greatly. Um, One, I guess, being accountable for leading such an important team and really owning the company's uh, data analytics and AI is, uh, is very, very different than selling and delivering services of the same. Mm-hmm. Um, as a as a CDO, you know, as I mentioned, I had responsibility to the board for how we were managing data as an asset and how we were really monetizing our most valuable assets, which were data and talent. So, you know, I was uh, really fortunate to have a role at Accenture where, um, where I was able to advise our uh, CEO's direct reports and um, and then I had a goal, a personal goal, to really help the company uh, grow its own share of wallet through um, building relationships with other uh, with other C level executives. Um, and you know, relationships just they mean everything to me. Um, when I started out there, I. Um, you know, there were, you know, there were just, there were no, there were no classes, right? I mean, on how to be a great CDO, we just had to learn from each other. So, you know, some of the CDOs that, you know, I meet with today, like we've known each other for at least 15 years or more. And, you know, getting together at at conferences or at summits sometimes kind of feels more like a reunion than, you know, um, than anything. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that, you know, of the almost 75 that, you know, that I meet with on a regular basis, um, there are more than 400 now in our entire community, because as leaders, we don't um, we don't really build those relationships, I think, with companies the way that many of the consulting companies do. It's, you know, we like to build relationships with each other, um, with other leaders. And so when, you know, the client account leads would share stories with their teams, they would say things like, um, you know, have you seen Salima with CDO X? It's like watching someone have a conversation with their brother or sister. And, you know, that would, it meant so much to me. I mean, honestly, like, um, and I think that, I think that this is going to continue to be a challenge for the big four because, you know, they, that's not their, that, that's not where they, um, you know, that's not their goals and objectives. They, I feel like they need to earn a seat at the table and companies like that, you know, aren't always willing to make investments in relationships. And I think that, you know, It's kind of like diehard sport fans, right? Like I live here in Columbus, Ohio. So if you're not a Buckeye fan, then you probably stay home on Saturdays in the fall because it doesn't really matter if the Buckeyes are winning or losing, right? If you're a Buckeye fan, you're there in the stadium, you're out somewhere, you're wearing scarlet and gray because that's what you do, right? I mean, like it's... um. 
you support when you're winning, you support when you're losing. And so, you know, I am who I am today because of the people who I have in my circle. Um, they are like family to me and we support each other and we win together and we lose together, even these CDOs that I work with. So nothing is more rewarding to me today than to see um, other chief data officers. When I was at Accenture, you know, I, I loved um, getting stories from other CDOs about how they got promoted or somebody who didn't have the title who now has the title or somebody who came from supply chain who's now you know a CDO but anytime they get accolades within their own organizations to me that's a win and I think that it's not always about the financial win although the financial wins come along with it because you're building trust and you're yeah. building relationships and yeah. um and I just think that, you know, there's probably going to be an uprise in boutique firms who are going to kind of figure some of this out and um, and, and disrupt uh, the industry in AI space. Because fundamentally, whether it's in the AI space or anywhere where you are working with clients, are you suggesting that unless there's a real and I use the word real in the, in the truest sense of the word, but a real relationship build based on being purely genuine rather than superficial and being there just at the opportunity to maybe win a piece of business. Mm -hmm. Are you suggesting that, that that fundamentally is what wins the day? And perhaps there's a number of people who work in every industry where there isn't enough ingenuity, if you like, when it comes to that relationship management. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think for me as a, you know, so it's kind of like when, you know, you're in any C-level position, right? And you, um, especially, you know, coming up in the data space, you know, you may have multiple vendors that are, you have to work with to create one product, right? And so bringing them all together and giving them a seat at the table you know, you have to trust them. Mm. You have to have faith in them. You have to know that they have your best interests at heart, right? Um, it's one of the reasons that some of the companies that I work with, I mean, that I'm on their boards is because they are those types of companies that they're companies that I'm willing to put my reputation on the line for because, you know, they treat people and they treat organizations the way that I do, that they want to have a seat at the table. They want to be that they want to be the problem, a, a helpful problem solver. They may not be able to solve the entire problem, but they will come to the table as a problem solver for a niche. And I think that we're going to see more and more of that in the, in the coming days. Yeah. Do you think you can build trust quickly, Salima? No, I don't. I don't think it can be very quickly. I think it takes time. I think it takes time for people to trust. I think that, um, you know, I used to be, um, I used to say, you know, I trust until I'm given a reason not to trust. But um, today, I think that it's a little bit different. And I think that I, um, it's one of the reasons that I love doing CDO today, because when a CDO, when CDOs and I get together, they're able to ask me those hard questions, like anonymously, I can tell them, yes, I know other um, 
I know other companies that are using this vendor or I know other mm -hmm. CDOs. And if that CDO is, you know, sometimes CDOs are willing to talk to other CDOs, right? And it's one of the reasons that make um, roundtables, large roundtables difficult. It used to be that our roundtables were just C-level executives. Um, and, but once you get down to where you have line level managers and CDOs at the same table, they may not have, you know, a lot of times their needs and their um, what challenges they're facing are very different. And so um, being able to connect chief data officers together um, that are having similar challenges or um, similar opportunities, or, you know, maybe um, they've done an amazing job um, building out master data management and showing the value of master data management. And then you have a, a newer CDO um, in this, in the CDO space too. It's really interesting that, you know, many of us legacy kind of CDOs had to do it all right. Like, you know, cause there wasn't anybody else that was, I mean, we literally had everything. Um, but today I have some CDOs who I mentor who came from supply chain, like they were, you know, a VP of supply chain or they were a VP in manufacturing and, you know, learned manufacturing analytics. And um, I love that. But it's a challenge because the foundational components and some of the governance and the regulatory, you know, they're not as um, they're not as familiar with. So being able to be there for them, um, I think, helps them to, I think it helps us to build trust, right? Because they, like I said, you know, it really comes down to, are you here to, you know, to partner with me? Are you here to, you know, help me do the best I can? Or is it just to win a piece of work? We don't live in an ideal world, right? We live in a world where things are ever changing, things happen in different ways for different people, different organizations. Throughout all the time that you spend with well, you've spent within your career and what you've seen, but also these 75 or 400 wider CDOs that you spend time with. Is there a recipe for success? Is there a, a, a pathway? Is there a roadmap that can be built to be the most successful CDO? Do they have to be positioned within a certain part of the organization? Do they have to report into the CEO or, or is a reporting line into the CMO or the CIO a better path it's never going to be exactly the same i appreciate that but have you seen a a loose recipe that will yeah. that will lead to the best success for a cdo well what i've what i've seen as the best recipe is what we talked about earlier which is being the change agent like mm -hmm. you know being positioned as when i look at uh companies who um, have kind of a revolving door of CDOs, right? Um, I think that it is because they were not positioned as the company's change agent. So they either um, are several layers deep, you know, so they're they're not in a they're not reporting to um, either <clears throat> the CEO or one of the CEO's direct reports. I mm -hmm. think that makes a huge difference. If you, even if you're, no matter where you're positioned though, even if you're five layers deep, if the CEO naturally recognizes you as the company's change agent, then it doesn't matter where you sit in the organization. Typically though, I see most success being at the first seat or the second seat away from the CEO. 
And then I think the other is around data literacy. I think that, you know, um, companies that say they want to become data driven and want to truly um, use data to drive their digital transformations, but don't recognize, you know, what is data when people are afraid of it, when, um, when, and I, I just feel like, you know, it's, it would be very difficult to bring the organization along um, on your journey. And then I, maybe the third is around um, CDOs, you know, back in probably, you know, 15 years ago, um, regulators would, you know, force kind of your hand into what's critical data. And so as we looked at critical data, you know, we were kind of boiling the ocean of, you know, any piece of data by reverse engineering a report or regulatory report or anything mm -hmm. that could cause us reputation or financial risk, we would identify it as critical. And so things that were critical, we would, you know, make sure they had governance and data quality and metadata and master data. And, and, and so we spent millions of dollars and it took years to see value. I mean, regulators saw value, right? Because like they were like, oh, good. You, you can see the end-to-end -end lineage for these 20,000 data elements. The company sees no value in that other than they pass their exams, right? I mean, so we passed our exams. But are we using data as an asset? No. So I think that one of the critical success factors that you know, we see today is around developing products. And so by developing products, we can say we're going to either develop customer as a product or we're going to develop an actual widget, an actual product. And as we do this one product at the lowest MVP level, we're only going to um, we're going to make sure that whatever data we use for this product is like top notch, top quality. Mm -hmm. Like when you think about generative AI, like, you know, the first thing I think of when I think of chat DTP is it's really fun, but it's not real. You know, I mean, it, it, there's nobody in there making sure that it's right or wrong. It's like using, it's like having a, you know, Googling Wikipedia sometimes. So um, I think that we as leaders have, um, when, when you see those companies that have a revolving door, it's because the chief data officer really struggled with, being positioned to show value to the rest of the company, not just not necessarily the external customers, but the internal customers. So bringing them along on that product development journey and um, and ensuring trust, right? The fastest way that you can lose trust and what happens in those organizations where you see revolving doors is that there's a lot of silos. So the operating model moved away from a good hub and spoke model where, you know, the um, where the responsible AI and the responsible data lives within one organization is kind of like fed down where standards and processes and policies and procedures are not just built for the sake of building them, but somebody actually cares enough to make sure that they're being audited and that they're being enforced across the organization. And when we do that, I think that's when they have success. I think that's it's it's a really interesting way of explaining it. And I think the other side of this coin is that we've we've spoken so far about 
the role of the chief data officer or the role of data and AI in general when it comes to business and how it impacts organizations and, and, and commercial entities. But one of the other things that you do, which we haven't mentioned so far, is your spokeswoman for CNBC when it comes to AI. And then when you're having those conversations, you're talking to a very different platform, right? You're talking to the general public, the, the, maybe someone who's very layman when it comes to AI. How do you go from being that individual, that CDO within an organization who's expecting, maybe not always, but expecting their audience to be somewhat informed from a, a data and AI perspective, to then having those conversations with people who maybe just see the headlines about it in the papers. And sometimes these are doomsday headlines. How do you sort of flick that switch when you're going from one type of conversation to another? So my goal in uh, my goal is really to help people make AI relatable, right? I think that, you know, just like, you know, my, my, my son, I know, you know, it's always asked me like, you know, what is it? I never don't really understand what you do. And then I showed up on his, on his Apple feed one day and it was like, oh, your job's really cool. I don't know if he really knew what I did, but like the fact that I showed up there, it's like he could relate to the fact and understand that. I did something or, you know, people are asking me questions that are showing up on his Apple newsfeed um, because it was relevant. It was relevant to something he was looking for and, and he saw me in that position. So I think that we need people to see some of the practical examples like Siri or Alexa and really address um address some people's concerns around both responsible AI and responsible data. Um, what a lot of times I do is kind of highlight the benefits, um, highlight those future possibilities, things like um, in healthcare where, um, where it's being used to diagnose diseases or develop more effective treatment plans. Um, I think that they need to understand that AI is really designed to augment, right? Like for a lot of time, for a really long time, I, I hated saying artificial. I always wanted to say like augment intelligence because AI is designed to augment human capabilities, not replace them. Mm -hmm. I know my AI can never have a baby. My, my AI can never, you know, hold somebody's hand while they're dying. You know, they, they can't feel, they can only, they can only learn words that we tell it. So I think maybe, you know, helping them to understand and relate in ways that um, how AI is actually going to help make their lives or make the world a better place is, you know, why I like to, you know, why mm. I like to help out in that capacity. On the UK radio this morning on the BBC, they were talking about conscious AI, which I thought was super interesting. But obviously, you're starting to get into the world there of I suppose, robots being created and thinking and feeling like humans. Is that something, I mean, I think we're quite far away from that, but is that something that you get asked about, that you talk about? I don't really talk a lot about the robotic side. I mean, we had a robotic dog at the office that was kind of fun, but I mean, you know, we don't... Um, most people, I try to stay away from conversations about, you know... Um, 
what is it? The uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, yeah, <laughs> Terminator, yeah. Yeah. the Terminator of the future. I mean, I think that there is a place for AI in some of that. I think that, you know, um, I've seen for years, I've seen some of the evolution that we've been doing around um, using uh, AI with drones. And I think that, um, I think that there's um, there's some really good stuff. I mean, and I think that's why regulatory is going to be so important because it'll help people's it'll it will help people's fears of um, some of the consciousness. I think that you know, um, I don't. I just I think that that's uh, the whole you know. <laughs> That world is not as uh, realistic as much as, you know, how can we do more efficient things? How can, you know, um, how can we use AI to help us do tasks faster, better, you know, eliminate some roles um, yeah. and responsibilities that we have so that we can focus more on the things that AI can't do? And that realistic word is the word, right? Because how realistic is the potential regulations when it comes to being a global representation of where, how and far AI can be pushed to be used in the best way and for what it's been designed for rather than what it's not been designed for? Well, I, I, I know a lot of people hear me joke about that old uh, Spider-Man term, like with great power comes great responsibility. Yeah. But I really, I really believe that. I think that regulating AI is such a big concern. I mean, we're already seeing lawsuits and buzzwords around um, privacy and intellectual property and uh, liability, um, especially in the UK. I mean, obviously personal data, data like uh, sensitive health information or biometric data that would invoke um, data protection laws, uh, intellectual property, things like you know, copyrighted materials, obviously, you know, music and images that people are using without any authorization, yeah. uh, but liability concerns and producing output that could actually harm someone. Um, obviously, you know, a big question I get asked all the time is about misinformation and fake content. Like, how do I know this article is real? How do I know this image is real or this video is real? Like those to me pose a huge risk. Um, and I think that we have to put controls in place to detect it and to mitigate the spread and promote um, some real responsible AI technology. And I think one of the ways we do that is with transparency by, you know, not having these black boxes, by over communicating, by building up data literacy, by, um, you know, having transparency and confidence is really going to be a key differentiator. I'm really pleased that you answered the question because I was going to say, how do we do that? And oh. <laughs> no, and it's good. Transparency and over communication. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you don't hear the phrase over communication a lot, right? But I think it makes a lot of sense because we're it's such a to many people. I know that artificial intelligence has been around for a long time, but to the majority of us who aren't in in it in it every day, it's relatively new and it's something that I think does need to be talked about a lot. And you know, all the different variables and all the different scenario based outcomes need to be kind of looked at in order to get to the optimum outcomes right and therefore as you say over communicated over talked about i agree it's really interesting because obviously it's such a global phenomenon so you know you're then getting into the world aren't you of you know different governmental regulations 
which is a whole different point, right? And and then how AI is used for political reasoning and, you know, in the case of you know, wars, et cetera, et cetera, it's, it's, it's a bit of a minefield for a lot of people. Uh, and, and that's why I'm sure having someone like yourself, Salima, on CNBC as an example is really useful. And it's great that it pops up on your son's timeline, right? And therefore yeah. loads of people's timelines so they can all get a bit of it and we can all learn yeah. a bit about it. Yeah, I was really, I, I, I was really honored when they reached out and said, you know, they'd been following me and just really thought that it would be that people would relate to hearing from me and hearing from a more, you know, a, a more practical application and how it's impacting organizations and how it's impacting the leaders who are typically, you know, owning that organization. There's been sort of a an intersection, right, between like an intersect between like CDOs and CAOs. You know, for a long time, the CDOs I mean, not myself, but in many organizations that somebody owns the data and somebody owns the analytics and it isn't always the same. It isn't always the same person. And I think that, um, you know, if it's not the same person, they have it's kind of like IT, right? Or it's like a, a three legged stool of the people process and technology um, that really have to come together. They got to be lock and step. And I think that we have to be able to make AI relatable. We have to be able to um, have, you know, people on the news and people in, you know, in the public to be able to um, share from their hearts, like, you know, what's, what is this really about? How is this really going to affect me? And should I be worried? Or, you know, how can I feel better about it? I think yeah. as I think that's some of the diversity that we're seeing, right? Like, I think that, you know, I worked for an organization that had, you know, nine men that all looked like you and they were all the nine presidents and, you know, and that's the way it, they all came from four colleges. And so there's yeah. little diversity of thought and diversity of perspective. And yeah, so that's why I'm a bit of an advocate in that space. Yeah. And, and you, clearly believe it's super important to have that diverse representation around every conversation, I imagine. Uh, I certainly am. I think without that diverse representation, do you think that we fundamentally won't get the solutions in any walk of life, I suppose, but certainly when you're talking about the, the data and AI space, do you think that we fundamentally won't get the solutions that we would have with full diverse representation in, in every conversation? Yeah, I mean, I, I mentioned to you earlier about the organization that I, I worked with early in my career where I was, you know, one of three. And and I think now, you know, we've we've come along, you know, we've really come a long way. But, you know, the reality is that, you know, women in general only make up 20%. Well, it's probably less than 20% of the entire kind of data and AI workforce, which is really like crazy when you think about that. And mm. yet- we had at um, Women in Data Science last year at Stanford, I keynoted, and we had over 100,000 participants. So oh, while that's amazing, you know, and we can easily say, you know, look how far we've come. I think that, you know, we've we've got some work to do. And I think that we're seeing more and more women, especially women leaders, 
helping to develop the next generation. Um, but me personally, like I've always had a very, very diverse team, especially um, diverse, like thought, you know, I want people who think differently, not just different, you know, genders, different races, but it really helps to ensure that our solutions are more inclusive, that they're more ethical and more relevant. And I think that this kind of um, helps us think that, you know, diverse perspectives can help avoid biases and, and even unsure fairnesses in our models. Yeah, I mean, it's a whole nother podcast, but neurodiversity as well is such a it's such an important part, I think, of a team's makeup, potentially. Very I was speaking nice. to someone recently who's building something like recruitment, but based around neurodiversity. It's going to be really interesting to see how it falls through. Lima, we've spoken about the impact on a lot of things that AI can have, uh, whether that's from a business perspective, personal perspective, political perspective. Um, but I think a, a lot of talk over the last, well, since really since ChatGPT has come out in the wider public about is AI going to get to a point where it's really affecting jobs and what people do for a living and how they're going to do it moving forward. What What's your perspective on all of those things? Well, I'm glad you asked. Um the you know we talked earlier about this the intersection of talent data and ai is is truly my love language um it's definitely um it's definitely something that i i love uh to talk about in general just because i think that it has such an impact i think that it's going to impact the job market significantly actually but i think it's going to more so as a co-pilot rather than as a substitute mm-hmm. um when you think about the workforce of the future, um, we've really got to do a lot to prepare them by um, reskilling them and upskilling them. And we've got to create new opportunities and help reduce some of the um, negativity that's out there, right? Like by minimizing that negativity, it's gonna um, it's gonna have an impact on our organizational's culture. So um, being able to acquire new skills and help them to adapt to changing job requirements that are going to come. I think there's going to be greater need for individuals who can um, understand and interpret and manage these types of systems. Mm -hmm. Um, I think also those who possess skills that are uh, complementary to the capabilities of AI. When we think about things like augmentation, rather than just replacing the great talent that we have, um, how do we leverage Gen AI technology to really enhance their productivity, um, to enhance their creativity, and most importantly, their problem skills, um, their problem solving skills, I think, which really is going to lead to people um, loving their jobs even more, rather than this, you know, negative feeling that they're going to be displaced by AI. Um, We know that with automation, that certain jobs with very repetitive tasks like um, content generation or even data analysis are going Mm -hmm. to be at risk. But then, you know, entire industries could be at risk. But I think it's really going to vary and it's going to take some time for us to kind of see the evolution. We know that um, positions in creative fields like art and design and content creation um, are are very high at risk. But 
Think about how this opens up new opportunities for the creative industry, um, an industry that typically wasn't very in, intertwined with data and AI. And so we're already seeing, um, and we have been for a while, uh, changes in like CRM and customer service and marketing. And um, again, you know, more tasks I think are going to be automated in that space. But then there's, you know, wages and education and training. And so we know that there's more factors that are coming and um, other skills that are going to be, you know, a big advantage that are going to um, help us to kind of pace the advancement that this is going to have. The adoption and the regulatory framework are also going to impact. But I think that on the brighter side, there's like so much job creation that's already happening. There's um, new opportunities that are really emerging every day. Like I think overnight we needed people to oversee and manage AI systems to um, to be able to ensure ethical and responsible AI and responsible data and analyze who can um, provide input and customization and interpret and validate the outputs. But I just think that, you know, we have to kind of slow down, you know, we have to think, you know, there are changes coming, but the culture within the organization is everything. Yeah. When I look at um, surveys that we've done for almost five years in a row now, not talent, not technology, not even value, but culture has been the number one challenge that chief data and analytics officers are facing. So now we've got to, as leaders, we've got to foster a culture of learning. We've yeah. got to promote a culture of entrepreneurship. And I think we've got to encourage that culture of experimentation and innovation. And we've got to lead our teams with compassion. Mm -hmm. And I think that this will really ensure the long-term success as we evolve into this new world of AI. Yeah, it sounds like the uh, chief HR officer is possibly going to become pretty important in that respect. Because as you were talking, Absolutely. I was thinking, who's responsible for this? And me as a person listening to you talking now, Salima, what responsibility can I take personally in order to upskill, to enhance my importance, right, next to uh, AI in my role as someone who works in executive search? But then how does the next person who's in whatever company they are or in whatever role that they're in, how do they do that? But then also what responsibilities must organizations take in order to try and upskill their people to sit in this next world that we're going to live in with augmented intelligence. That's right. I think people analytics and that intersection are going to become more important. That's, and I think that's why, you know, for all, it's almost like I was kind of ahead of my time because, you know, when I was with Bain, I mean, that's what we did is we looked at, you know, we looked at that intersection of how does talent, how does data, how does AI really come together? Like when you think of channel optimization, where if I if I get a, if I did away with job descriptions completely and I just focused on skills and what are the right skills for the right position at the right time and then married that with my channel analysis like what's the right channel 
right? What, yeah. what, where should I get this talent from? Should it come from an FTE? Should it be an SOW? Should it be, you know, staff hug? Like, you know, and based on a number of factors, right? Like we can look at rates, we can look at locations, we can look at diversity, we can, you know, there's, um, the data will talk if you're willing to listen. I think that we're big believers in coaching. So I think that coaching is something that you, you yeah. talked before or there about, how it's going to impact people and I was thinking what mentally maybe their mental health perhaps because yeah. are they concerned about their job and and so therefore how do they coach or how are they coached mm -hmm. to deal with that and actually make themselves relevant right and stay positive right. and all that all that stuff which is really important just as you were talking as well we work a lot in the consultancy space and the, and the strategy space do you think that this is a as challenging a moment for the strategy firms or the consultancies that when they're dealing with organizations and their blueprints for change and digital transformation and human transformation, et cetera, do you think this is one of the, maybe the most challenging moments for them? Absolutely. Because this isn't a one size fits all. One size doesn't fit all anymore. And in each person, and this goes back to relationships, right? I mean, you know, you, there are certain things that, you know, a, a template or roadmap can, you know, you can wash, rinse, repeat, right? But there are certain things you can't. And I don't think that strategy is one of them. And I think that, you know, every organization and every department and every product, every problem that we solve isn't a, isn't created equally. You know, we can't, we can't create something just for the sake of it. We need to under we need to work together. We need to understand, you know, what are the goals, what are the objectives, and you know, um, what is truly the problem at hand, so that we can create solutions that are more specific. And where the consultancy space is one where I've spoken to a number of people who are concerned that being a management consultant in today's environment is possibly harder than ever because AI could replace it. Actually. It's not replacing it. It's just making the consultants perhaps work a bit a bit harder or, or cleverer right. or think a little bit more critically in order to absolutely. add that value to the clients. Is that is that right? Is that fair? I absolutely agree. A hundred percent. I think that, you know, we can use it in ways to be more efficient to um, reduce the number of, you know, repetitive tasks that we have to do that will free us up to do the things that matter most which to me is really, you know, earning that seat at the table, building trust and, you know, be in it together, right? Like your win is my win. Your loss is my loss. Be in it together. That's what I like. And as someone told me on the, as I watched my kids soccer game this weekend and they lost the game, if you win, it's great. But if you lose, it's great because you learn. You don't lose, right. you learn. Absolutely. Uh, Thanks, Salima. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Search and Succeed podcast. Please subscribe and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. We'll see you on the next one.